I'm Reverend Beth Hayward, and this is Souls and Souls, a podcast for the spiritual but not religious and the religiously spiritual. Yeah, gosh, failure is one of my favorite topics these days, partly because we're so reticent to say, oh, you didn't actually fail. You know, you did great in this way. And that's one thing that I was I was taught. And, and there's some merit to that, right? It's like, okay, uh, can we zoom out and look at this situation with fresh eyes and, and fresh perspective? That's really important. But it's also important to say, yeah, I failed because my I set out to do this. Um, I didn't accomplish that. And that's a form of failure. It doesn't mean I'm a failure. My guest today is Greg Powell. He's the founder of the West Shore Community of Practice on Vancouver Island on Canada's West Coast, where his focus is on spiritual practices and wild church type activities, which I will be sure to ask him about later. Before becoming a church planter, Greg worked as an engineer in the environmental nonprofit sector for several years. He's a husband, a dad of two little ones, and a lover of the outdoors. Welcome, Greg. Thanks so much, Beth. Great to be with you today. So I want to start today, take us way back and ask you about a time in your life when you realized, if you did realize this, that, that you're connected to the world around you. Like when, when you ha- had some sort of sense within you or in your mind or looking back on it that you and nature were not so far apart. I mean, do you have any glimpses or memories of times like that? Yeah, certainly some images from my from my childhood summers stand out. We had a cottage, my dad's family had a cottage in Muskoka, a cottage country in Ontario, the traditional territory of the Algonquin peoples, for uh, since it opened up. And so I would spend all of my summers out there basically paddling canoes and walking the land. We had two acres of land there, so there was so much space to explore and trees to climb and access to water. So... That certainly stands out. And I, I mean, I can distinctly recall as a family, we'd go paddling and I'd drag my fingers in the water. And I just knew that that was a part of who we were. Mm-hmm. And I can also distinctly remember this, this one tree, actually, because my dad w- was also a minister and he would teach us about the spirit. He's like, you can't see God, but there's evidence of God. Just like we can't see wind, but we can see the evidence of wind. And it was the wind in the trees. And I can still remember this one windswept pine tree that was kind of around the corner from our cottage. And I would see that one and be like, oh, yeah, the wind has shaped that tree. And in that moment, I could sense this kind of connectedness. This is like five or six-year-old Greg we're talking about. And I didn't have yeah. the language then for it, but that's that's certainly what was going on on a, on a visceral level. Yeah. Yeah. Those uh, And those memories sort of stick in you, right? In your body. Um, and yeah. you still love the outdoors, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If I don't, if I can't get access to the outside, then I'm a pretty miserable creature. <laughs> so hiking, <laughs> paddling, biking, uh, tree climbing, whatever it is. Absolutely. I need to be out there. That's how I thrive tree climbing you know I remember Robert Munch when I brought my little children years ago to hear him telling stories he would he was in his 60s then and said he still climbed trees um so that's uh I love it when grown-ups say that they climb trees still that's wonderful yeah yeah when we were in Castlegar we used to do our young families retreat at Camp Kalari. And I'd make a point of encouraging the kids to go tree climbing. And, you know, we're a little bit reticent to encourage our children to take risks these days, but it's so important for all of us to take high perceived risk that actually has low 
risk. So tree climbing is one of those examples where there's actually low risk of serious injury. You might get a cut or a scrape, or even if you fall, you know, we have enough adults around to catch somebody who were to fall. Mm -hmm. But the perception of risk is really high. So we have a sense of bravery and courage. And that's so important for all of us, but especially children. Well, that's an interesting concept. So a perception of risk um, and whether there's real risk. Now, you this year in the middle of a pandemic planted a, you know, we'll we'll get into this a little more, a a church or a community. Um, That feels pretty risky. Like, (laughs) so when you think, I mean, it's one thing to think about falling out of a tree, um, but to sort of take a new angle in your career, um, especially in a time when people aren't coming together to try to plant a community. Um, it seems to me there's some real risk there, but maybe it's just my perception. Yeah, no, that's an interesting way to think of it. And certainly there is some, some risk, right? I and mean, there's the risk of complete failure. And that's certainly a possibility. There's a risk of um, uprooting the family, which we did, and them, you know, and, and us not reestablishing roots, that's a real risk. And I think the greatest actual risk, so in this case, you know, my, my salary was guaranteed for enough years to, to kind of assuage that risk. So the greatest risk is the psychological and I guess emotional and spiritual risk that comes along with the sense of failure, right? What if this all fails? What if this all falls apart? And, um, and I lose my sense of confidence, my sense of vocation. Like these are the things that are that are on the line. Is it's not so much um, are we going to you know end up living on the streets because that was that risk was off the table, right? But the risk is what about the psychological effects of of failure, which is a distinct possibility and one for which any church planter should be prepared. Well, so you must have through the years acquired some skills or resiliency, some uh, practices that uh, enable you to be the kind of person that, um, you know, that's willing to take those sort of risks. I, I, I'm interested in hearing a bit about, um, you know, have you learned from failure or success or what? Um, what is it that drives you to, um, to say, you know what, um, I'm willing to put my reputation, my self-esteem on the line. Does it, how do you get that? I would say that the true me deep down inside is a real chicken. Hmm. I've always been afraid. I've always been the last one to take my bike over the jump or whatever it is as a kid. Right. Um, but from, and so from an early age, I guess I'd have my parents and my brother and my friends encouraging me, um, and also mitigating the actual risks. But I realized that I want to be the kind of person who takes risks, even though it's not actually what's natural for me. It's something that I've aspired to all along. And mm-hmm. and so I I guess I've, I've forced myself out of my comfort zone enough times. And I've, I've, like, I've come to learn that I generally land on my feet. I have enough supports around me. Um, I know that people will love me regardless. I mean, certain people, some people uh, wouldn't, of course, but (laughs) some people, there's enough love. God will love me no matter what. Um, And there's a huge reward in in being brave and and taking risks that we, I think we tend to underestimate quite a bit these days. So no, my natural tendency is not to take risks, but I've learned enough to know that I need to, to thrive and flourish. Yeah. And, um, the rewards, <laughs> um, you know, I, I struggle with the myself with that whole piece of what does my ego want? Um, 
And what does that more true self that knows it's loved uh, no matter what want? Or, you know, what am I called to do for the world? So I'm, I am interested, um, you know, you're human like the rest of us. So uh, when you think of success or landing on your feet, is, is it about your ego or is there another part to it as well? Is it, uh, does it deepen that sense of, uh, oh, I've got something to offer here? And, yeah, that's a really great question, one that I've struggled with for quite some time. And I don't know enough of, you know, Freud's work to <laughs> to comment on ego per se as in the scientific sense, right? But yeah. the the sense that I have is, am I just driven to be seen and be on stage and be the one that everyone's looking at to center myself? And I, I recall having this conversation actually with the Education and Students Committee when I was going through my candidacy process. And I was worried that part of my attraction to ministry was to be the guy in the front, to be center stage. And is that just feeding into my ego? And um, one of the one of our colleagues now, actually wise member of the committee, um, encouraged me that, that even if it is driven by ego, it can still be a faithful response to God's call. So even if we feel good, even if there is something in us that, that um, craves that that good feeling, that can still be a faithful response. So I think that's the other part of the question is, is it a faithful response? Is this a genuine call or is it just ego? So the both can can exist simultaneously, but we have to recognize what's the stronger part that's pulling us towards something. Yeah, and I guess to not dismiss the, the part of us that is... Um... That has an ego, right? I mean, that does it drives us. So. Yeah, yeah. Like it's okay to feel good. It's okay to feel confident and strong. It's okay to recognize what drives us and to allow that to fuel ourselves, right? There's a bit of a like a guilt associated with feeling good, I think, and and that's really tragic. I mean, I actually only speak from my own sense, I guess. But when I feel good, sometimes I feel guilty. Like maybe this is just privilege or just an a, abuse of power somehow. But actually, it's okay if I feel confident and if I feel strong. Well, you know, I have a sense that there is um, within me and maybe in the world, there's this overarching, this might be generalizing too much, but a sense of scarcity. And it goes that way too, in terms of, well, if, yeah, if I'm feeling uh, too okay, you know, I've got to look over my shoulder and make sure that, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's certainly important to make sure you didn't step on others on your way there. Um, but, but what if we imagine that the world actually is filled with an abundance of goodwill for us all um oh my gosh isn't this isn't this what jesus taught like abundance above all else <laughs> and and we rejected that notion in favor of scarcity because the scarcity mindset is so prevalent and it's really powerful and it's also how we evolved we evolved right. because we need to respond to scarcity more urgently than we can respond to abundance so times of hunger we have to be you know desperate whereas when you know after the harvest oh well it doesn't really matter so much um, and also so i've learned from uh, a unitarian minister in the u.s who is indigenous that the indigenous people's pre-contact had had scare had actual scarcity right the there wasn't a lot of food in at certain times of the year and all this stuff but they didn't have the mindset of scarcity and I think that's a big distinction is to recognize what's a scarcity mindset and when resources are actually scarce, because we can't just live in the scarcity mindset all the time, even when there is, even when resources are actually scarce, we can't let that overwhelm us. But our, as humans, we 
we do that. That's how we evolved and it's natural. So we have to actually use the teachings of various religious traditions or other things to allow us to overcome those, those instincts to focus on the scarcity. Well, it almost sounds like it's a matter of um, trust, right? How do you lean into having trust, um, even when the circumstances around you um, pull on that, you know, what some call the monkey brain, the yeah. uh, the amygdala that just says, uh, hunker down and take care of yourself. How do you lean into trust? Um, and to take stock of history, too, and look at the evidence. You know, we we have this plethora of challenges before us the climate crisis, we have growing racial tension, we have all these things. And the question is, can we can we solve these problems? Is there a way out of this? And we, if we look at history, we've pretty well solved every major challenge that has come our way. My grandparents wouldn't have conceived of a time when two major world superpowers aren't in direct war. And yet since the end of World War II, I mean, there's been indirect conflict and Afghanistan, you could say, was between two world superpowers. Um, but we haven't had two world superpowers open in openly declared war since the end of World War II. Like this was unfathomable throughout all of human history until that moment. And I don't think we're actually going to see it again, despite, you know, what what the the talk is. And conflict certainly happens in other means. It's mostly economic these days. So we need to look at the problems that humans have solved. Polio was was wiping out the global population and we solved that right through the goodwill of and science and um, so we need to be confident that we can continue to solve problems none of us i don't think thought that we'd be out of this pandemic as quickly as it looks like we're going to be so you know again evidence of solving problems i hear you telling um you know stories i, I it, the story we tell shapes what we believe or how we approach our current reality uh it it seems pretty um I mean, on the one hand, common sense, but it also seems quite bold to be able to say, I'm, uh, I'm going to tell stories of uh, not success, but resiliency. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That is so important that we tell stories that encourage us to think in terms of resiliency. And we are extremely resilient people. I've been studying the work of Martin Seligman in his book, Flourish, and he devotes quite a lot of, of the book to um, the military and the work of positive psychology in the military and how we can encourage people to flourish even in the midst of trauma, even when there's devastation, terrible things happening either as, you know, on the receiving end or the giving end, there's just so much trauma involved there. and and the dominant narrative now is, well, trauma leads to post-traumatic stress disorder. And he's saying, actually, that's that's much more rare than we let on. Usually it leads to post-traumatic growth. And he distinguishes the two. So uh, same trauma can happen. And the difference between that trauma leading to post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic growth is about the stories that we tell. You know, a same event can happen. Does that make me, the story might be, I'm a terrible person, I'm a weak person whatever it might be, or the story can be that happened. This is the reason why, and this is who I still am, despite all of these things. Those stories are really important. So a question, I, I want to take us in a little different direction because I, I, I want to let people into a little, you know, not secret of your life, but your path. You, you say your dad was a pastor. You're talking to me now about, um, what the Christian tradition has taught you and your your candidacy to become a pastor in the United Church. But before that, you were an engineer. And I mean, I don't want to 
uh, for a minute suggest that science and religion don't go together. But that seems like a, a strange path to take. Like, did you have a young midlife crisis? What, what would you wake up one day and say, because uh, you were doing important work in in engineering around, uh, you know, as I understand, issues that relate to uh, the climate and uh, did a light bulb go off? Was it a long, slow, pro was it an easy change? What happened? It's probably a mix, probably a both end in all that. Um, so I, uh, let me preface all this by saying that the best science and the best religion is all about wonder, right? The best scientists, the best biologists get down on their hands and knees, put their hands in the soil and say, wow, I wonder what's going on in here. I wonder why these creatures are interacting that way. And that's a very deeply religious experience in my view, as long as it you know brings us together, that would be considered religion. Uh, and so I see them as very closely linked and both of them actually demand the scientific method, you know, which is to make some observations and put forward a hypothesis and then try to disprove the opposite hypothesis. And that's what theological inquiry should be about too. It's like, oh, I, th I think God is like this because of that. Okay, well, let's investigate that theory a bit more. And so religion falls apart when we don't do that, when we discourage questioning, when we discourage doubt. Science also falls apart when we discourage investigating the null hypothesis. And unfortunately, a lot of science is falling apart because you know, the grand cycle and all this stuff is actually about um, proving your hypothesis rather than disproving the null hypothesis. Anyway, there's a mild, minor digression first. So the best religion, the best science are actually the same thing in my view. Okay. Well, that was your preface. I mean, we could just go down. That, that oh, this is a very a deep while. hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do want to know more about that because here's the thing. I, um, I often, you know, my life too, I'm in a religious world. I've committed my life to working in an institution. And what I hear from people about why they want nothing to do with organized religion is often this perception of uh, religion kills wonder, right? to, uh, that religion's about answers. So I think it's a really interesting uh, to name for people uh, wonder as an orientation to all of life um, as a, a starting place. I, so I'd love to hear more about um, what spirituality means to you or what how wonder translates uh, in your life into, um, into your work. And, and maybe it does connect to the scientist in you and the pastor in you. Yeah. Well, wonder is most certainly real for me now as a parent, because my children just wonder about everything. And they'll ask me questions and sometimes I can explain it and sometimes I can't. And I'll just respond with, oh, I wonder why that is, you know, as we're kind of taught to do in the godly play model, right? That's everything should be playful, religion, science, everything should be playful. And so children just have that tendency to, to wonder because they don't actually know. And as long as we don't embarrass them or shame them away from their wonder, they'll continue that. Most adults kind of get shamed out of our wonder, shamed out of our curiosity because, well, I guess my own experience, I thought I should know these things by now. And so I have to put on this air of confidence and this air of knowing, but absolutely wonder. And then, you know, religion 
it's an interesting beast because there's institutionalized religion, of course, and there's also the origin of the word is is comes from like ligament, ligat, which is to bind, to bring us together. Not bind as in my hands are tied, I can't do anything, but bind us as in we have this thing in common now. Like we have this this pursuit of truth and meaning and purpose. And so religion that allows that in that wonder and the, the wonderful investigation and inquiry to happen is great. When institutions feel threatened by wonder, then the whole thing shuts down. And that's kind of been the norm of, I think, all religious expressions since, gosh, I don't know, I mean, probably the third or fourth century. I'm kind of speaking beyond my knowledge here, but that's what I'm just thinking is, is the inquiry became threatening for the institution. And that's, that's probably still true. You know, we put forward hypotheses and well, is that true? Can that actually be? But our ideologies kind of get in the way and, and we stifle meaningful inquiry and then the whole thing kind of falls apart. Well, it kind of goes back to the fear, doesn't it? It's, uh, we certainly feel more comfortable when we, um, when we know the answers. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great point. And to, to be in that place of wonder and not knowing is is emotionally threatening in a sense, right? Because living with uncertainty is hard for people. It's just easier to feel confident. If we're always wondering, um, it's really exhausting, right? And this is this is a little bit about Daniel Kahneman's work, um, who is probably one of the most groundbreaking researchers in terms of psychology of, I don't know, the past 30 years maybe, is his, his revelations on thinking fast and thinking slow. Um, I think it's like 98% of our 35,000 decisions we make in a day. I was just looking into this. Um, and so there, those, those 98% of the 35,000 decisions we make are fast decisions. They're kind of intuitive. They're decisions that we've already made before, so we know exactly how to make them again. Um, and we have to do that because there's too many decisions to actually go through all the time. If we wonder about every single decision, it's, it's exhausting. Our brain is a very energy intensive part of our body. Uh, and so we'd have to, you know, double our caloric intake. And, uh, we'd just be exhausted all the time. And so we, we just, we make assumptions and take shortcuts and we do that out of necessity. Um, so it is tiring to wonder. It's, it's very demanding on ourselves and on our communities if we're constantly inquiring about the reason things are which is why which is why parenting is so exhausting some of the time right because like why is that well and then you have to actually think about it then you have to think is this is this true <laughs> do i know enough to to make this claim um can i just say stop asking questions or can i go all the way down well and you um I know you've done uh, with your daughter, who's six, I think. Um, yeah. You do uh, spiritual practice walks with her. Like you don't, you actually take it, put it on display like, and dare to go out there in the world with your kid to teach people something about um, the practice of wonder in the world. Um, that's pretty special. <laughs> Like that's, that's sort of a walk in your talk thing. Uh, what surprises you most in those encounters with her as you're trying to put the curiosity for the world on display? Um... Yeah, well, so there's two dimensions. One is our YouTube channel, Spiritual Practices with Eliana and Greg. Please feel free to check it out, subscribe and like. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Well, and it's been on the back burner for most of the winter because she kind of ran out of steam for it. But now that the sun's back out, she's more interested. Uh, and so, so there's that one. And there's also our, our family-friendly contemplative walk, which we do every Monday. That's kind of our, our church service for young families. With the pandemic restrictions, we haven't been doing it 
beyond just our family. Um, but I hope, well, it looks like we'll be able to resume some of that pretty soon. Mm-hmm. So the thing that I've learned the most is actually how much she is grasping about the world and her brother who is four so she's six and a half he's four uh they're you know in in many ways they're in similar places in many ways they're in different places and it's shocking to me actually what she can either remember or how she internalizes the things that we've talked about before you know so the next video that we're planning for our spiritual practices is um singing singing as a spiritual practice and it's it's shocking to me the things that she comes out with sometimes and and what she remembers. So we're like going through a list of all the songs that we know and one that she pulled out. So we sing every week on our contemplative walk as a family again, but we sing most of the kind of short repetitive sing like a rock or something from the Teze tradition, but she was remembering my love colors outside the lines, which we don't sing. So it's it's tricky to sing as family. I'm not a very good singer, but she remembered this from over a year ago so she was like five and a half, but it's just, it's parked itself somewhere on her body that she knows these songs mm-hmm. and she connects with them somehow. You know, we think that we need to just have the simple children's songs, otherwise they won't get it. Well, they're not going to get it on an intellectual level the way that you and I mind, but they'll get it on an embodied level. They'll get it emotionally and spiritually. Um, and so I'm always amazed by how much she actually is internalizing and how, how deep she's willing to go with some of these things if we just give her the chance to go with it. Well, and of course, don't we all um, know those moments? Uh, I've seen it with my own children when an adult speaks to them like a fellow human instead of like a child. Uh, yeah. And you see, you see their, uh, they become more present. It's like we all just want to be treated like our whole selves. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, you know, I, I want to ask you... Um, about failure, about, have you failed? Mm. <laughs> and, and maybe, well, you know, what's that look like? Um, do you th- is it about failing ourselves, or those we love, or our expectations? Um, yeah. I don't know if there's, uh, I know we started with, um, this is a new venture in your life, and there's lots of risk, and you've got to orient to, um, I usually land on my feet, even if I'm a chicken, but, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, have you failed? Yeah. Gosh, failure is one of my favorite topics these days, partly because we're so reticent to say, Oh, you didn't actually fail. You know, you did great in this way. And that's one thing that I was, I was taught and, and there's some merit to that, right? It's like, okay, uh, can we zoom out and look at this situation with fresh eyes and, and fresh perspective? That's really important, but it's also important to say, yeah, I failed because my, I set out to do this. Um, I didn't accomplish that. And that's a form of failure. It doesn't mean I'm a failure. Mm. And we're pretty lousy at distinguishing those. I mean, we need to improve. I'm speaking in generalities here. Okay, I need to improve at (laughs) distinguishing an act of failure from a character of failure. I'm not a failure, even if I do fail. I haven't failed that much really, I failed a few times and I set out to do things, you know, in sports is probably the best example. I was a defensive back in football long before we understood the impacts of head injuries. <laughs> and um, you're not a real big guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a mass of five foot six. And at my peak, I was 165 pounds. <laughs> so that's why they put me in the backfield, hoping no one ever actually had to get to me. Right. And, um, and so you'd have these, you know, six foot three 
receivers catching footballs over my head and scoring touchdowns every once in a while, right? And so, yeah, that is a failure. Does it make me a failure? Of course not. That's silly. We would lose games. We failed at that task. Does that make the team a failure? Of course not. It just means that we failed at that specific thing. And it's really important to acknowledge when we do fail. I set out to do this. I didn't accomplish it. That's a form of failure. Meanwhile, we can also translate that into growth. So I failed at that, but look at all these things that I accomplished or that I learned or the ways that we grew in doing this. You know, we failed as a team to win the city championship, let's say, which is a true story, but who cares <laughs> 20 years later? It's like, I remember the moments we shared on the field or in the locker room or whatever it might be, the things that brought us together, but we don't set out to do that overtly. That's kind of what happens incidentally. That's the same in, in church land. You know, we have churches that are closing down and, and that seems like failure. And it is a form of failure. No one set out to shut churches down, but that's happening. So we're failing at keeping churches open. But the things that we're learning or the ways that we're coming together, it's amazing what we're actually doing. And even in a pandemic, when you'd expect massive failure, actually people have realized I have more to give or I can do that or I can learn this and that and the other. And we're just extremely resilient. So yeah, it's important to recognize when we have failed at something what we've also learned in the process, how we've grown, and that we ourselves are not failures. God, God's love is still available to me when I fail, <laughs> to all of us, right? Yeah, it's a beautiful distinction. And, um, and I think one that we don't, um, we don't lift up and ingrain in, in one another enough. Uh, it's really helpful. Do you well, and it's hard yeah, because, it, it's hard to, because our identities include our vocations, right? Our identities include the things that we do. And that's important. We should be, care enough about the things that we do to incorporate those into our identities. So when we fail at the things we set out to do, that does imply a degree of failure of our identity. So it, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's so important to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. When you think about the future for your children, do you have hope? And yeah, yeah. And where do you where do you? Where, <laughs> I was I was sensing that you were a, a glass half full or overflowing kind of guy. But yeah, what are the signs of hope um, that you see? So I wasn't sure in my twenties if I would have children eventually. I knew that I liked being around children. I babysat as a teen. I I pictured that all along, but I was quite convinced by the arguments that the world's going to fall apart, humanity's doomed, we're not going to have enough food, nuclear warfare, etc. So I asked my parents, and I was born in the 80s, and they had the exact same worries. You know, I was born during the Cold War, I suppose that the Cold War is still going on, but they lived under the threat of nuclear war constantly. Was it responsible to bring somebody into the world when there's this threat of nuclear war? Well, that never bore out. You know, the population time bomb, Paul Ehrlich wrote that in the 60s or 70s we were supposed to the world is supposed to be doomed by now mm -hmm. meanwhile we're feeding more people than ever before we've reduced by half the number of people living in poverty ahead of schedule like we've just been able to accomplish so much there's still work to do there's still unequal access to opportunities but that inequality is diminishing by the day you wouldn't know it by a lot of the narrative the the discourse around racial differences or um, the discourse around differences in equality based on race or the differences in equal access to opportunities based on gender tells us that the world is falling apart. We have some real challenges, but we have every right based on the evidence to believe that we will solve these things. We're, the world is better now than it ever has been. And we know this because if you ask anybody 
<laughs> you know, if you could live at any time and be randomly assigned a role at that time, when would you want to live? It would be absurd for anybody to accept anything but the present. Right. This now is the only time you would want to live if you're going to be randomly assigned a role, because even though there are huge challenges, it's still better for most of the world's population than it was at any point in the past. And we kind of, we, we glorify the Garden of Eden because we think of how beautifully humans got along with God and how there was so much abundance in this lush garden. And it's a beautiful story and it probably doesn't reflect an actual time, right? It reflects an idea and it's an important idea. And this, and the idea of returning to God of reconcil reconciliation and this abundance, like that's an important thing to strive for. But we can't pretend, we can't glorify the past because there's always been warfare and struggle and actual scarcity. Things are better now than they ever have been. And so I'm quite confident that things are going to continue to improve for all people, even though I worry about the future for sure. I mean, things could fall apart pretty quickly, right? A lot of uncertainty around the climate crisis, around uh, potentially malevolent artificial intelligence, like these things could take off. An engineered pandemic, of which I don't believe this is one, but an engineered pandemic could easily wipe out a lot of the world's population. So we need to be aware of these things. But we can't we can't fall into the narrative that says that we're not going to solve the problems because we are going to solve the problems because we have solved problems. Mm -hmm. If we have enough faith to love each other, to love God, to believe that this world is good and beautiful and that we are good and very good and beautiful, then we connect to each other in our surroundings and to God and we take care of each other in our surroundings and we take care of our relationship with God. So although I feel doom and gloom sometimes and I'm feeling more hopeful now that the sun is shining more, <laughs> uh, the evidence suggests that we have every reason to be hopeful. So tell me, just before we finish off, tell me about um, the practices in your life that um, ground you in that orientation that um, I guess enable you to grow roots and stay connected so that you can keep that, uh, what I would not call optimism, but that real true hopefulness about you? Mm -hmm. Well, certainly spiritual practices help. I have um, another podcast actually called Wander, which is just me going for a walk and offering a spiritual practice. Uh, and I think I do that more for myself than for any potential audience. There isn't a huge listenership out there mm -hmm. as far as I know. So I'm doing that for myself, but I find that important. And it's kind of because I want to produce this thing it's kind of the impetus to to do the activity that's been important singing i this is what we're going to focus on in our next little video is i can't stay angry or upset when i sing i can yes. refuse to sing and hold on to my anger and upsetness but i can't sing my daughter's learning my favorite things right now so we sing that a lot and i can't stay angry after singing the first line of that i can't I stay that. angry yeah right exactly <laughs> or, or we learned um uh, Veni Sancte Spiritus on one of our contemplative walks. And my son constantly asks for that song. I can't stay angry after singing the first few words of that. Mm. I mean, I've started off angry, but he says, oh, let's sing that. I'm like, yeah, okay, let's sing that. Um, so singing is just so important, which we don't do nearly enough of in North America. Dance probably too. We we have some dance parties once in a while. I'm not a dancer. <laughs> I, I danced uh, in high school and university with some help in terms of confidence um but i'm not a dancer so when the kids are like oh let's dance I'm like oh, okay let's do it well i can't i can't feel grumpy after that <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and so when we just kind of let go of our inhibitions, maybe, or just give in to the invitations that are around us in the case that I've given, you know, from my kids or invitations to connect or look outside or be outside, climb trees. When I can immerse myself in an experience, like the one thing I like about tree climbing too, is you're, you're face to face with the trunk of the tree. You're like staring at the bark and you're staring at the bugs or the lichen or the moss growing on the tree and, and, and everything else melts away. All the other worries in my life melt away when I'm so fascinated by that thing. So it's really important to lose ourselves in that fascination of the moment, the fascination of the wonder. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, as if um, when you're fully present to this moment, um, uh, your perspective changes. The, the hope flows naturally, if you will, um, because yeah. every moment is filled with wonder. Um, I would say even probably the challenging moments. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've tested this theory before and I've been told that it's just, that I'm just kind of blinded by my privilege in, in asserting this. Hmm. So maybe I ask forgiveness from your listeners if that is the case. But I believe that if we can be present to this moment, right? Even in the case of people who have endured tremendous trauma in the past, if we can be present to this, to this one breath, that's an amazing breath. This is an amazing moment. For most people, most of the time, that's it, right? It's, it's those stories that rattle around in our minds, the worries about the future. But the present is an amazing gift. So if we can stay in it, then we can dwell in that amazingness and realize that we're all so beloved. Greg, this conversation with you has been uh, a moment of gift and presence. I thank you for sharing your stories and your heart and your deep well of hopefulness. Thanks so much. Thanks, Beth. I'm flattered that you would inquire. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Reverend Beth Hayward, and this is Souls in Souls. If you'd like to connect, you can look for us on our website, canadianmemorial.org. And be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.